On the evening of September 10th, 2001, American Todd Beamer and his wife had just returned from a trip to Italy. He could have taken a flight that night from New Jersey to San Francisco, but he decided to leave for his business trip the next morning in order to spend some time with his family. On September 11th, he left the airport aboard United Flight 93. At 9.25 a.m., his flight was above Eastern Ohio and its pilot radioed Cleveland controllers to inquire about an, an alert that had flashed on his cockpit computer screen to, quote, beware of cockpit intrusion. Three minutes later, Cleveland controllers could hear screams over the cockpit's open microphone. The hijackers had taken over the plane's controls, disengaged the autopilot, and told passengers, keep remaining sitting, we have a bomb on board. Beamer and the other passengers were herded onto the back of the plane. The curtain between first and second class had been drawn, at which point Beamer saw the pilot and co-pilot lying dead on the floor just outside the curtain. Within six minutes, the plane had changed course and was heading for Washington, D.C. By now, several passengers had made phone calls to loved ones who informed them of the two planes that had crashed into the World Trade Center. Beamer tried to place a call through a phone located on the back of a plane seat but was rerouted to GTE Air Phone Supervisor Lisa Jefferson. With FBI agents listening in on the call, Beamer informed Jefferson that hijackers were in control of Flight United 93, that one passenger had been killed along with two pilots. He also stated that two of the hijackers had knives and one appeared to have a bomb strapped around his waist. When the hijackers veered the plane sharply south, Beamer briefly panicked, exclaiming, we're going down, we're going down. It was then that the passengers and flight crew decided to act. According to accounts of cell phone conversations, Beamer, along with others, formed a plan to take the plane back from the hijackers. The passengers and flight attendants discussed their options and voted to storm the cockpit and take over the plane. Beamer told Jefferson that the group was planning to, quote, jump on the, pass the hijackers and fly the plane into the ground before the hijackers' plan could be accomplished. Beamer then recited the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm with Jefferson, prompting others to join in. Beamer signed off with Jefferson, stating, if I don't make it, please call my family and let them know how much I love them. After this, Jefferson heard muddled voices and Beamer clearly stating, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. These were Beamer's last words heard by Jefferson. Todd Beamer and others like him saved countless lives by making sure the plane did not crash into a Washington, D.C. building, but in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Where did he find the strength for such a courageous act? Answer, in the Lord and in his word, specifically the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23. Now, just to be clear, those two texts are not more inspired than the rest of the scriptures. And yet the Lord specifically uses these oftentimes in such situations as this. As a matter of fact, Augustine called it the hymn of the martyrs because so many as they were going to their death, they would quote this psalm. It's, it's well-beloved. I think it's perhaps the best-known psalm of all times. Even unbelievers will quote it as if they know it and they know the shepherd. 
Uh, it provides great comfort, and rightly so for believers today. And you may wonder, why would you teach on that? I mean, everybody knows Psalm 23. Well, many people know it, but have you ever studied it? Have you kind of taken apart the text? It's incredibly encouraging and courage, uh, courage building. And so we'll take a look at that today. I, I appreciate the great job Adam did this past Sunday. The wife and I were <clears throat> sickly, and we're glad to be back with y'all today. If you're wondering a good outline, let me give it to you. Just in two parts, uh, David seems to have written this psalm. We, we know he was written by the Holy Spirit, but at what time, we don't know. I kind of think it was at the end of his life. That as he looked back at his life, he could see the Lord had been a shepherd his whole way. But really, it's kind of two parts. Verse 1 through 4 is this motif of the Lord as the shepherd, and you'll see this played out here. Verse 5 and 6, it's seen more so as the Lord is the host of a banquet, Although some commentators would say that's debated, and we'll see that in just a little bit. If you're looking for a good structure, y'all are sharp people. We don't just give three points to every sermon here. Nine, nine benefits to having the Lord as my shepherd. Nine benefits. I'll note this, over 600 times is this sort of sheep and shepherding language found in Scripture. So it must be important for us to understand. Uh, besides the occupation of shepherding, the term shepherd is really used for three designations in the Bible. The first are leaders. The leaders, not just leaders of Israel, but also those in the ancient Near East. Hammurabi was a leader in the old ancient Babylonian kingdom, and they would call the leaders the shepherds of the people. But especially we see this in the Bible. Now, some of these shepherds were evil, such as found in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, where they are feeding themselves and not feeding the sheep. So it's used for leaders. Secondly, it's used for pastors. Um, I've talked with y'all about this before, but the word pastor is just nothing more than the Latin derivative of, the, of our English word shepherd. Um, who are they? They are men who shepherd the sheep. They take care of the sheep. And what's interesting is that shepherds are always sheep as well. So we need to be careful that we don't think that we're high and mighty. And there's other titles used for pastors. They're also called elders and overseers. I know I continue to hit the drum here, but I am not the pastor of Grace Church. That role has already been taken by Jesus Christ, who is the pastor. And now at this point, somebody will say, well, he's the pastor, but... The shepherd, same thing, same thing as we'll see. It's the same exact term. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, I make a big deal of this a lot of times. I, some, one of y'all had gotten a strange email from me, and it was from Pastor Jeff. And I double-checked on that, and I was so thankful my email had not been hijacked. It just happened this past week. If you get something from Pastor Jeff, it's not from me. And the, uh, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that terminology, but I get perhaps a little hypersensitive in my ecclesiology. You see, I am just one of several pastors here, one of several under-shepherds under the great shepherd. I'll show you. Uh, Pastor Adam spoke last week. Pastor Moy was up front here. You also heard from Pastor Barry. Pastor Rodney will be doing a baptism. Uh, Pastor Larry is running all things senior adults 
And of course, Pastor Mike is running a lot of the missions. Um, so it's just, it's terminology. We are all under shepherds. Uh, so I don't really care what you call me. Uh, just don't call me late for dinner. That's the main thing. Everything else is good. Leaders, pastors, i.e. shepherds. And finally, the third thing is the Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ calls himself the good pastor or the good shepherd, same term, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. If I were to ask you, who is the first person in the Bible to call God his shepherd? It, it'd be the patriarch that, that lies the most. And you might think of Abraham, and I would say, no, no, Jacob has him beat. The great deceiver, he calls God his shepherd. Jacob, he blesses Joseph at his deathbed, and he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And we'll see the person who wrote Psalm 23 was the Holy Spirit, but by the pen of David, David calls God his shepherd but also David himself was a shepherd. So let's take a look at this, shall we? Chapter 23, verse 1, this is the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. First off, the word Lord, there, there is the covenant name for God there, Yahweh. It's used 4,000 times in the Old Testament. First revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, when Moses is going to Egypt, and he says, who, if I, who sends me? What's your name? And the Lord says, I am who I am. And that translates Yahweh. And what does he mean by that? Well, there's just a tons of things he means by, but we know this, God is timeless. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is self-sufficient. The Lord does not need others' wisdom, power, or service. He actually doesn't need for you to tell him how to run your life. Isn't that fascinating? And yet we try to do that all the time, if you're like me. I like the way James Montgomery Boyce, the um, Presbyterian minister, wrote it. He says, the Lord is not accountable to us. He answers only to himself. The Lord has chosen to be our shepherd. The great God of the universe has stooped down to take just such care of you and me. So this is what we see lined out in Scripture, do we not? Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. He made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So I really want you to kind of buckle yourself in for this. I want you to really kind of get set for this. These metaphors of shepherd and sheep are so important for us to grasp today. If the Lord is, in fact, your shepherd, the shepherd always was the lowest. Uh, he took the lowest duties David, the youngest son, is the shepherd in his family. Why is it such a bad task? Because you're caring for dumb sheep 24 hours a day, all year long. Remember what God does is he leads the children of Israel through the desert. He shepherds them. He led them the entire way. And the Lord chooses to do this. And then when you think of the metaphor of sheep, why sheep? I mean, God could have used many other animals uh, there are some commentators that think that God actually created the sheep for us personally. That we would know that's us. Dumb, stupid, defenseless, that's us. It's interesting to think about. 
So he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Rebecca and I were talking about this, and she said, you know, I remember in first grade having a banner over our Sunday school room, and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. She said, I can never figure that out. Some of you may be able to relate to that. She said, if the Lord is my shepherd, why don't I want him? So she would drive her poor first grade teacher crazy asking that question. So she finally got answers. And for some of us, we've like, I love that phrase. And if I were to say, what does it mean? You go, I don't know. I just like it. It provides comfort. No, let me tell you what it means. I really like the way the New English translation defines it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Doesn't mean I don't want things. We always want things. But my needs are taken care of. And yet when you think about it, sheep lack everything. I mean, when you think about the school mascots, perhaps that you grew up with, you know, the, the eagles, the, the bears, the lions, no one chooses the mighty sheep. No one takes that one on. They really are the most foolish, stupid critters out there. As a matter of fact, just to, for those folks that are urbanites, like most of y'all perhaps, you never grew up with sheep. I'll show you just a quick snippet. And you, some of you may have seen this, but of a sheep that gets stuck in a trench. And can you go and play that? One minute. Okay. You just let me know when. Um, point being is that he lacks, uh, the sheep lack everything. And they find themselves in trouble all the time. And they can't deal with that. So when y'all get that queued up, let me know. That's not the way it works for us, is it? Yeah, we actually lack everything without the Lord. We really do. We're defenseless. We can't fight off things. The Lord has got to take care of this. So let me show you this real quickly. Thanks, guys. That wasn't just done for pure entertainment. And some of you may have heard that screaming at the end. What was that? Was that a small child? Actually, goats and sheep do make this sound. They'll actually scream at times like this. And it sounds remarkably close to human beings. I think that was on purpose. The Lord had done this. Note, he gets out of something and he goes right back into it. Folks, that's us. And yet the Bible says, Philippians 4.19, my God will supply your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. As one of the commentators states, David says that if the Lord is your shepherd, every area and activity of your life is under his direction, protection, and control. So the first benefit, and among nine at least, my shepherd makes sure that I lack nothing. And I'm going to have a quick caveat, and that is this. We're not calling health, wealth, gospel here. No, no, no. That clearly is not saying that. Saying the Lord takes care of you. He has you today. He has you this morning. You need to trust him. Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
David begins this psalm, did you note, speaking of rest. He's talking about the sheep resting. That's the first thing he begins. I think it's a reminder for all of us. Believers begin the Christian life by resting in the Lord. That's the way we begin. That's the way we live our lives. Matthew eleven twenty eight. fill in the blank. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Psalm 37, 7, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Philip Keller, who was a shepherd for eight years before he went into full-time church work, he wrote, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23. Uh, he says that sheep are noted for lying down in places sometimes where they should not, a hollow or depressed depression in the ground. The sheep center of gravity may shift and he could find himself with his legs in the air, unable to touch the ground. It gets worse. Gases can build up in his body and he will no longer feel his legs. In a few hours, a sheep will die unless the shepherd can put him back on all fours. I would encourage you today not to think of, oh, how sad it would be to be a sheep. You are that sheep. <laughs> and with the Lord, if he doesn't put you back on all fours, you yourself won't make it. And I think you, to note this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, note that sometimes those green pastures of our lives, as one commentator wrote, may look in reality more like hospital beds. And some of you that have been through tremendous pain and suffering, you go, that's no green pastures. But you need to note this. The Lord is interested not only in our physical food and rest, but spiritual as well. You see, he knows, he knows exactly where we need to be in order to grow to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. I'd even push back and not push back at that, but just push forward and say that David, when you read the story of First and Second Samuel, where is David at his best? I think primarily when he's 10 years running from Saul. When is he at his worst? Second Samuel 11, he has the kingdom. He has all that he needs. And then he sees a woman bathing. You see the problem? We don't do very well with success. And so the Lord knows that and he peppers our life in those fashion to give us green pastures of his own making. And not only that, but still waters, gently flowing. It's not very common in Judea. It's kind of a desert type area. And yet that's where the Lord directs us. And the idea of still waters is a place of rest. And the Lord does this, not just for eternity, but y'all, he does it here in this life as well. So number two, my shepherd gives me food and rest. In the eternal state, it says in Revelation 7, 17, he will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. What will that be like? Continuing on, it says he restores my soul. In the Hebrew, it reads something like this. He causes life to return. He causes life to return. So number three aspect, benefit, my shepherd gives life to my soul. How did he do that? Well, before Christ, he allows me to live long enough until he justifies me. Many of y'all were not saved perhaps into your 20s, 30s, 40s. Do you really want to go back to BC before Christ? The Lord could have taken you at any moment and you would have been in hell for eternity. So the Lord keeps you alive long enough. He grants you salvation. He performs this divine surgery. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
According to Ezekiel 36, he takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh and it's beating. He breathes new life into you and you believe. Well, what about after you become a believer? Well, now as a believer, he encourages us, he corrects us, he brings us back when we are so prone to wander. He gives life to us all the time, not just physical, but spiritual. And then it says in verse two, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we have to camp here for just a moment because there's just many applications for this. I'll give you three. Number one, his name's sake. You see, his name, when it refers to God, when we pray in Jesus' name, it means we are, we are praying by his power, by his character. It's who he is. So when we read Psalm 31.3, you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Wherever we travel in life, this is for his name's sake. This is for his power to, and mercy and grace to be shown to the world. It's his name. It's not the name of Jeff Brown should perish. As John the Baptist says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That should be our mantra in life. So not just his name's sake, but notice this, his paths. One of my favorite verse, and for some of you that are, oh, I don't know, junior high, high school, college, you're thinking, what's God planned for my life? What's it going to look like? And you keep wanting to peer, you know, around the curtain to find out what God's doing with your life. Listen to this. Proverbs 20, verse 24, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? So that means your average believer, if you talk to him and say, tell me, why do you think that happened? You're going to hear more oftentimes things like, I have no idea. Why did that happen that way? Or why are you in going this route? Sometimes we just don't know. Because ultimately, we don't write the script. He's written the script. And you know when he wrote it? Before the sands of time began to fall. Are we still responsible? Yes, we are. And God is sovereign. Yes, he is. And how do you bring those together? I don't. They're rails on a railroad, as, as Spurgeon would say. They meet in eternity, perhaps. Point of it is, is that if your steps are directed by the Lord, the focus should be on him. I think the Puritan would laugh at our questions that we ask our kids. What are the, what is the biggest question we ask our kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? Did you catch the personal pronouns? What do you want to be when you grow up? You're the master of your fate. It's not a bad question to ask because it reveals something of what a kid would want to do. But I like the way the Puritans would ask something to this effect. Not what do you want to be when you grow up, but how do you think the Lord has crafted you to serve in his kingdom? You see, because the Lord has crafted us together in our mother's womb and he's made us all different. How, do you, how are you going to serve there? What's that going to look like, you think? It's very different, right? These are his paths. Number three, he knows best. God's very nature is to be faithful to himself, to his promises, to his people. He cannot be unfaithful. It's not possible for him. So he can be trusted. And the reason why he can be trusted in 2023 is he was trustworthy in the past. Be clear. 
I'm not saying that you have answers for all the troubles of your past. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that he is above, he is eternal, he sees these things, and you can't figure them out. But trust him. So he's trustworthy. He leads you. He leads you by his word. He leads you by his spirit. He leads you by providence. And yet I would say regarding providence, that means how God works out his sovereign plan in your day-to-day lives. It's, it's just too hard to decipher. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really, many of us focus on providence. Oh, this is what the Lord's doing. I think I got this figured out. Let me turn around here. Oh, yeah. Trust his word. His word is the thing that doesn't change. The problem is you and I don't read providence very well. We have to just trust. So number four, the Lord leads me in his paths. His paths. Number, uh, verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Did you catch the change in pronouns here? He's been referring to his shepherd as he, and now he says, you. What's going on there? Well, I think he's changing from praising the Lord to praying. So he's using the word you. And he says, you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll talk about that in a moment, but it perhaps could be best translated as the darkest valley. You see, for some of us, perhaps our fears are not death. It's worse than death. And so that could be your darkest valley. For a shepherd, some of the fears of going through the dark valleys would be thieves, easy to hide, snakes, bears, lions. For us, walking through deep valleys might look like fear of failure, fear of disease, fear of financial ruin, fear of rejection, fear of the future. And yet, how should we handle bad news as it comes, quote unquote, bad news? Because ultimately, all things are working for our good. Psalm 112, verse seven, it says, the believer, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. You see, the Lord, our shepherd, get this, he knows the route. Even as sheep look up at the shepherd and going, you're really taking me through here? The shepherd's the one who knows the route. He can be trusted. So remember this, the Lord, our shepherd, he leads us through valleys of darkness just as intentionally as he leads us by streams of living water. Just as intentionally. This is exactly the route we're supposed to take. You see, the greatest fear, it seems, is death for most of us, or perhaps the death of others. Bible calls death the last enemy. Hebrews 2.15, though, it says, fear of death is one reason why God became a man to get rid of our fear of death for believers. One of the ways that we get rid of our fear of death, let me give you a good verse for that. Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In the original context, God is telling Moses that God's already in the promised land that you're going into. But for us, we would say, the Lord does not lead us anywhere. He's not gone first. He's defeated death. So he is the one who has gone ahead of us. It's now disarmed. Death doesn't have any teeth anymore. It's gone. 
Revelation 1, fear not, I, Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys. You're fine. But what about the shadow of death? I, it's a really picturesque way of describing it. It's certainly the Hebrew can translate that way. Spurgeon writes that for a believer, death is so different. It's so radically different than for an unbeliever. For a believer, it says, death is in its substance has been removed. Only the shadow of it remains. Death stands by the side of the highway by which we have to travel. And the light of heaven shining upon it throws a shadow across our path. Let us then rejoice that there is a light beyond. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a person's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Let us not, therefore, be afraid. G. Campbell Morgan was a uh, pastor in London in the 19th century. He went to visit a young lady uh, who lay dying after giving birth to a child. Very common in every other century, but really this last one. Very common. She lay dying after giving birth to a child and Morgan listened as he overheard the doctor caring for her while the young mother said, Doctor, I don't want to go alone. Doctor, please, I want to take my baby with me. The doctor tried to encourage her, noting that her baby would be cared for. She needn't be afraid, but she could not take the baby with her unto death. The doctor stated, The gate through which you must go is only wide enough for one. At that point, Morgan stepped forward, touched the doctor's shoulder and said, Doctor, do not tell her that. Tell her that the gate through which she is about to pass is wide enough for two, for herself and her shepherd. He who brought her to this place will not desert her now, but he'll see her safely home to the other side. The fifth benefit, my shepherd protects me in any trouble. Note, I didn't say that my shepherd protects me from any trouble. He's there with me in it. Notice what he gives us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As a reminder, sheep are totally dependent on the shepherd for food, water, protection. What did the shepherd use to protect and direct his sheep? Two tools. First one is the shepherd's rod. That would be basically a, you know, a two-foot club that he would keep on his belt. It was used to fight off attacking animals. Sometimes he would beat them. Sometimes he would just throw the club at an incoming wolf or lion. Not only that, but he also has a staff, and you've seen it. Sometimes it has a crook. It's a, uh, kind of a circular on the end. It's basically a walking stick and would guide the sheep and keep them away from the dangers such as cliffs. Shepherd used his tools to comfort the sheep. What about you? What is that telling you? Jesus is looking at you going, I will fight for you. Many of us try to fight on our own, like, okay, I can just, just be courageous enough. I can do this. And I would tell you this, the Lord wants your dependence. He doesn't want your independence. The Lord is saying, I will fight for you. I will direct your steps. I am with you. So the Lord provides the same protection and direction and comfort for us. So why don't we trust him? 
I think we're prone to wander and we're prone to think I can do it myself. And I would encourage you today, you cannot do it yourself. You're sheep. Think about this. Even when a wolf comes after a sheep, he's not fast enough to outrun him. He can't even climb up a tree like a cat can. There's nothing he can do if the shepherd is not around. So he's got to constantly be close to the shepherd who protects him, who directs him. Number six, my shepherd comforts me. He comforts me. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, I told you earlier, verse five and six are seen as kind of part two of this passage. Um, He could be speaking of the shepherd, uh, the analogy, the entire way, because there is a view that shepherds prepare the high tablelands and they clean them up of any poisonous material, and then he brings the sheep in, that could be the case. Um, I think the symbolism is real more morphing from a shepherd guiding sheep to a host welcoming a guest to his own table. You could hold to either, either one. But there's, there's reminiscences of this in Jesus' own words. In his parable in Luke 12, 37, he will talk about the master. He will dress himself for service and have his servants recline at table, and he will come and serve them. I think it is a reference to himself. We see even in John 21, after he's risen from the dead, the apostles have stayed out all night, and Jesus says, throw your uh, net on the other side of the boat, which is basically from here to here. (laughs) And sure enough, they catch so much fish, uh, and Jesus says, come and have breakfast, and he serves And we can imagine the perfect scenario of that in our future is the marriage supper of the lamb, where we will feast and have foods that we've never perhaps even heard of, or at least broccoli for the first time will taste really good to me. (laughs) But note this, it's not just eating with the shepherd. Eating with the shepherd is not just a meal, but it means loyalty, friendship. So when God eats with his people, it's a sign of him living with us. The scriptures say in him, we live and move and have our being. So in, his, in God's kindness, notice he's serving me, and you catch where he's serving me? In the presence of my enemies. Why does it say that? Well, to put it like this, as walking through the darkest valley does not make the sheep afraid because he's right next to a shepherd, so being in the presence of enemies will not scare the sheep because the Lord is the master of the house. And I think it's interesting because David, and in our own lives as well, have you been in this situation where the Lord is serving you in the presence of your enemies, be that the enemy of disease, the enemy of real people who have become your enemies, and the Lord is taking you by the hand and carrying you the whole way? The Lord is with you. Some of you, and you know who I'm talking about, have lost loved ones, and it's been terrible. And yet, look, you're still here today. Is it because you just got it together? No. The Lord was preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies, perhaps the enemies of sadness. You anoint my head with oil. Uh, Anoint here might suggest, you might think of the priesthood or the kingship where they would place the oil on the head and it would drip down. It really, it's better described here as something that refreshes meaning the divine host pours oil on our heads prior to seating us at the banquet table. 
Uh, one of the commentators writes, anointing is an ancient common practice by the Egyptians, later by Greeks and Romans and others. Uh, the oil found from olives was used pure or mixed with spices. It was an act of hospitality toward a guest. In Luke 7, Jesus accuses Simon of lack of hospitality. No water for his feet, no kiss, and a neglect to refresh his head with oil. The neglect of anointing was considered a sign of mourning, whereas uh, anointing with oil was a sign of joy. And really for us, this ultimately happens in the next life, but also in this life. The Lord has given us so many blessings. And God is working for your good even now as he refreshes you morning after morning after morning. He goes further and he says, my cup overflows. That is what your grammar teacher used to call a synecdoche. It's not a term we use that often. A synecdoche is a part of something that stands for the whole of something. Suppose you got a really nice car and you drove it up here to the church and somebody looks and says, nice wheels. You wouldn't then look at them and say, if you think the wheels are great, take a look on the inside. They would say, no, I just used a synecdoche. It's, it's something that stands for the whole. Some of you have many head of cattle. I hope you're not just referring to the head, right? You're referring to the whole body. And those are synecdoches. This synecdoche means, is, is this. Um, it's a cup is symbolizing for overflowing blessings, overflowing. There's a story about a guy named Captain Wilson that J.M. Freeman wrote in the 1800s. And Captain Wilson wrote, I once had the ceremony performed on me in the house of a great and rich Indian in the presence of a large company. The gentleman of the house put a golden cup into my hands and poured water into it until it ran, poured wine into it until it ran over, assuring me at the same time that it was a great pleasure to receive me and that I should find a rich supply of needs in his house. So the man just held it and they just kept pouring the wine. It just kind of went over and over and just this picture of, you don't need to worry about a thing. I've got you. Now, for some of you that perhaps are more negative, you think, yeah, but this is King David. He was a king. Think how easy life was for him. Au contraire. David knew heartache. Ten years on the run, he had to even hide his family from Saul. He commits adultery. He commits murder. His oldest son, firstborn son, was a rapist. His daughter was raped. Absalom, his son, starts a civil war. His best friends betray him. God didn't have an easy life. And yet David, like us too, the Lord has given us so much more than we deserve. He's given us eternal life, a new heart. We will live forever. We may, as a buddy of mine, a friend of mine used to say, we may lose the first three quarters of the game, but we win the fourth. And certainly that is true. David found his joy ultimately in the Lord. I think he tried to teach his son this, Solomon, although Solomon didn't learn it as well. But Solomon could write by inspiration of the Spirit, Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Who's the cheerful of heart? Psalm 94, 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Lord, you're the one who makes my heart sing, not my circumstances. 
So number seven, my shepherd hosts me even among enemies. Finally, verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We know what the word goodness is. The word mercy, it's that Hebrew word, once again, chesed. And it means, it's a combination of love, kindness, loyalty, mercy. All four of those are wrapped up with a bow on top that says this, because you are in covenant with someone else, the Lord can do you no wrong. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. If you dare stop there, you're not preaching the Bible to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things do not work together for good for unbelievers. Actually, all things work together for his destruction, ultimately. But for a believer, they're working for your good. To look at it like this, and Moy made a great point of this, not all things are good, quote unquote, but all things are working for our good. My favorite uh, dessert is my wife's apple dumplings. Oh, they're good. Just have a little slice of heaven enjoying those. But she would never say while she's making them, hey, I put a, a stick of butter. I don't know how much she puts in there, but I put some butter in there. Why don't you just go ahead and have it early? You can just chomp on this stick of butter. I'm like, I'm not eating that stuff. Or maybe here, here's some flour. Just enjoy it for the moment. Those things are not good, but they are working for good. That's the way it works for our lives, too. We can't explain everything he does. Most things I cannot explain, but they are working for our good. You see, the the way it works is this, is that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. I really prefer the word pursue here because that's really, I think, the better term. It's not that they kind of followed David from a distance. No, these are foxes running after the rabbit, And, and you're the rabbit in this analogy. You see, the term is used of David's enemies chasing him down, and yet here it is used of the Lord pursuing him, chasing him. Why? Because he loves him. So David will be blessed. And you yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, will be blessed. You cannot stop it from happening. For all those that are in Christ, you cannot escape the Lord's desire and commitment to do you good to make you look like his son, which is the ultimate good. So number eight, my shepherd pursues me with good gifts, though we may not like the packaging. I would say oftentimes we don't like the packaging, but you have to believe it. Lord, this is for my good and I don't understand, but I trust you. This reminds me of the 17th century Scottish Covenanters. They were those who supported the Presbyterian Church in Scotland and its elders is being over the affairs of the church and not the king of England. The king of England was saying, no, I'm going to be head of the church. And the Scottish Covenanter said, no, you're not. And they defended their churches. Uh, sadly, so many thousands of Scottish Presbyterians were killed that they called that period the killing time. A, a one man in particular, Richard Cameron, a 33-year-old Scottish pastor, fought the English over this, and he was killed in battle in 1680. Richard's after his death, Richard's head and hands were severed from his body, and they were taken to Edinburgh, where they were cruelly shown to his father, Alan Cameron, who was in prison for the cause, and he had already lost his daughter to the English forces. When the soldiers showed the head and hands of his dear son, he was asked, 
Do you know them? Alan Cameron kissed his son's head in hands of his son. And he said, I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. Alan Cameron has no reason for this, but he's going to trust the Lord. Another Scotsman named Samuel Rutherford said, our little time of suffering is not worth our first night's welcome home to heaven. So when it concludes, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, David is spending his lifetime going home to the Lord, and so are we. John 14, Jesus' goal for preparing a place for us, when he says, I'm preparing a place for you, why does he do it? That where I am, you may be also. You see, ultimately, even though we are with spiritually Jesus, according to Matthew 28, he is with us always to the end of the age, we will one day in the flesh be with him. And that's the point, is not so much to be in the house of the Lord, but to be with the Lord. So nine benefits to having the Lord as my shepherd. The ninth one, my shepherd lives with me, or perhaps you could say I live with him happily ever after. He makes me lack nothing. He gives me food and rest. He gives me life to my soul, leads me in his paths, protects me in trouble, comforts me, hosts me even among the enemies, pursues me with good gifts, and he lives with me or I live with him happily ever after. We could add so many more. Such as the biggest one, which is what? He died for me. He died for me. And if you're an unbeliever today, you need to note this. The shepherd became a sheep to die for the sheep. John 10, we will begin John next week. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to camp on Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. John goes through this quite a bit. John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, for those that are in Christ today, you heard his voice. Maybe not physically, but you heard it. And for the first time, you believe, and you trusted in Christ. And I would ask you, unbeliever today, is the Lord your shepherd? Is he yours? I'm not saying, is he a shepherd? He is a shepherd, but is he your shepherd? Come to him today. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you so much for this incredible psalm. Constant reminder, Lord, that we have to stay close to the shepherd. Pray that you would help us to do it in ways that's honoring to him. We're not here to manipulate, Lord. We want to be by his side, not because we love his gifts, although we do, but we love the giver of all good gifts. We thank you for it. In your son's name we pray it, amen.